This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. All right, Patrick McEnroe here. Time for a little Holding Court tennis overview of what's happened uh, in the last six weeks or so. Of course, the U.S. Open is coming up ahead of us shortly. We've had a couple of big tournaments going on this summer up in Canada, of course, where we saw Jess Pagula win the title there on the women's side, Yannick Sinner win there, Cincinnati ongoing. Uh, But I want to go back and talk a little bit about Wimbledon because I wasn't able to uh, get a podcast in post-Wimbledon. And I have to tell you, it's been amazing, you know, traveling around, whether it's at the Tennis Academy in the city, in New York City, in Long Island, going up to Newport as I did for the Hall of Fame, for the tournament up there, and for the induction ceremony, which was amazing, by the way, with um, uh, Esther Vergeer going into the Hall of Fame uh, wheelchair legend. Um, and it was just an awesome situation up there to hear her speaking um, and to be part of that. But, you know, Wimbledon has obviously been the talk of my travels as I go around uh, in my with my various hats on. And so many people were just blown away by that Wimbledon men's final. The women's final wasn't particularly exciting, as we know. I mean, it was great for Van Drusova to win it. Uh, on Jabor, unfortunately, couldn't do it in her third major final. Felt bad for her because it seemed like she just sort of froze up a little bit in that championship match. But I've had so many people approach me this summer about Carlos Alcaraz and, and Novak Djokovic and really what was an epic Wimbledon final. Uh, not the greatest Wimbledon final of all time, but it, up there. I mean, certainly in the ones that I've covered or watched as a brother, obviously my brother in Borg in 80, Federer and Nadal, we know about that one. Federer Djokovic from a couple of years ago in 2019. So there's been, a, there's been some, I think, that the... Well, maybe not the quality, but the tension was greater, you know, throughout different courses uh, uh, of those matches. This one was, I mean, I'm going to say top five for sure, maybe even a little bit higher. I was waiting for that moment, um, hoping, not because I'm anti-Djokovic or even, you know, back in Federer and Nadal. You know, I wanted to see a young player step up and beat one of these all-time greats in in a big-time match. Um, and I love Djokovic. I mean, I love what he's done for tennis. I love all those guys. What's not to love about him? Nadal. I wanted someone to beat Nadal at the French, you know, just to see it happen. Never happened. Well, Djokovic beat him a couple times, but you catch my drift. Federer beat an informed Federer at, you know, a young guy to beat him at, uh, at a women Wimbledon final, Australian Open. Sits a pass, remember, beat, did beat Federer once in, in the Australian Open. But when I say a big match, I you generally mean a final, at least a semifinal. And so that, to me, what was so exciting about Alcaraz, you know, losing that first set 6-1. By the way, I ran into, over the course of this summer, one of my buddies was, is Mike Lupica, the great sports writer for the Daily News, and he had a show on ESPN for a long time. Just one of the great writers um, in in sports history, really. And he's still alive and kicking. I saw him out in our club in, uh, in the Hamptons. He likes to get out there and play. But he actually texted me during the Wimbledon final. He reminded me of this uh, when I saw him uh, this summer. After Alcaraz lost that first set 6-1, okay, he was the only guy that sent me a text that was related, that was like this. He said, just remember that guy sitting next to you right now 
meeting my brother John, um, won the first set 6-1 against a guy named Borg. Okay, and that turned out to be the epic five-setter that Borg won. So uh, it was just interesting because he's got, a, you know, he covers all sports, particularly in the New York area, but that he remembered that because, of course, you know, I had, I had a, a, a guy train with at my gym here say to me just in the last couple of days, oh, yeah, I went out, you know, he lost that first set, Alcaraz. I thought, oh, it's going to be another blowout. I went to the gym. I came back two hours later. They're in the fourth set, you know, watched another hour and a half. So it was uh, it was amazing to see that, first of all, Alcaraz was able to, come back from losing that first set 6-1. I didn't think he played terribly. He was obviously a little bit uptight, but it wasn't this, you know, I still felt he was in a better frame of mind than he was at the French because I was at the French when he came out just guns blazing and sort of hit himself out of trouble, into trouble, I should say, in that French Open a semifinal against Djokovic, then got back on track, won the second, but cramped up, in my view, mostly because of nerves. So to see him rebound and, you know, make that the match that it was, you know, come off the mat, win the second set, and then really dominate throughout that third. I thought Djokovic was, he looked like he was on the ropes, but he, you know, as he's done so many times, he was able to find a way to get back to neutral in that fourth set, win that fourth set. And now you're like, okay, game on, fifth set. And, and Djokovic, of course, had the chance in, in the early stages of that fifth set with the break point. A lot of people have mentioned to me that swinging volley he missed on break point. Okay. At, I, mean, it was, I think it was love one, either 30, 40, or add out. It was break point. And uh, I've analyzed that many times because I think it was a crucial, you know, one of the many crucial points. Of course, he had the long game and uh, uh, earlier in the match as well, whatever it was, 27 minutes or something crazy. But a couple of things about that shot. And, of course, Djokovic had set points to go up two sets to love, missed a couple of what normally for him routine backhands in the tie break. So losing the tie break, uh, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a sign, I think, that, that he, the guy's human because he'd won every tie break at Wimbledon at the French Open going into his lockdown mode. A little bit windy, a little breezy. That was part of it. That was part of that swing volley. Because when you see, if you watch the replay in slow motion, he looked like he was going to hit an overhead. Now, a couple of things about that moment, because I think it's important. Djokovic, we know, and I've said this, he's the greatest player ever. His, his overhead is marginal, I mean, especially for his level. Every shot he has is unbelievable. His overhead has always been that little bit of a bugaboo in his game. Very strange. I mean, he still makes a lot of them, but it's a shot that's not like automatic for him. And so when the ball went up, you could see that he had quickly the overhead grip, changed his mind quickly because it was a little windy, and then he elected to go for the swing volley. Now, he was in sort of the forehand side of the forecourt. The other thing you have to remember is Alcaraz's speed, and Alcaraz was starting to to cheat over to his forehand side because we, and we teach this at our tennis Academy, particularly for kids is that you should go cross court with the swing volley. I mean, we tell the kids 95% of the time, if you get to the pros, maybe it's, you know, 80%, you know what I mean? But it's still the, the, the shot that you normally play because the swing volley to go down the line is exponentially more difficult. 
So the reason he tried to go down the line, Djokovic, was to get to Alcaraz's backhand because he knew that Alcaraz, from even deep in the court, the guy can hit winners. So there's so many different factors at play in that one shot that he missed. So when people say, oh, well, he just missed that shot if he had broken him there. Yeah, but there's a lot of factors that that what the hang in the balance in a match that that's close, is that close. And it's always about, it's always so much more about who's on the other side than people think. And that's sort of the point of me telling that story. Of course, Alcaraz steps up. The other thing, uh, you know, particular points I want to mention are that final game when he's serving for the match, 5-4, holding, you know, got the break early after fighting off those initial break point, the chance for, for Novak. First point, you know, pl- tries a drop shot, misses it badly. You're like, how could he try that? What is he doing? You know, it's, he's serving for the match. It's the Wimbledon final. Second point, what does he do? Serve, medium return, you know, not great, but not horrendous. Drop shot again. You're like, what? Drop shot. Djokovic actually gets to it, but he's in a defensive position at the net. Alcaraz could probably just as easily rip the forehand passing shot, which is a more percentage shot, goes for the top spin lob. <laughs> How many times have you seen Djokovic just like frozen on a top spin lob? Now remember the wind. The wind is a factor because the wind where where Alcaraz was playing from was slightly blowing in his direction. So that means a topspin lob is actually a higher percentage shot if you're hitting it into the wind. So the, all these things are being calculated by these players at the, the biggest moments. And he's able to pull it off, you know, because if he misses that again, he's down love 30. Now, I went back and watched Alcaraz over the course of the last uh, couple of weeks when he was 13 at the tournament Le Petit As, which is a big 14 and under tournament in Europe what many of these top players have played in over the course of you know their junior career. He was playing these drop shots then. He was coming to the net, doing these stab volleys. So my point is, is that this wasn't out of his comfort zone. In other words, he, what, where I think he's changing the game is that he's making what seems like a low percentage play you know, playing the ball short as often as he does, playing the drop shot, coming to net as much as he is in, in a game that's been completely dominated over the course of the last 15 years by baseline players. Now he's, you know, you're seeing him do things that you thought like, well, you can't do that now because of the modern game. So that, that's what's so exciting about a couple of different things that are, to me, exciting about what we saw was the way he stepped up against Djokovic in this, the biggest match of the year. When his he was <clears throat> back was against the wall. When he got off to a slow start, and Djokovic, by the way, playing at the top of his game. I mean, I know he's thirty six now. I think he's thirty six, right? Um, but he's still playing like. I mean, he's won. He won two majors this year. It would that would have been three in a row. So it was. It's not like he's slowed down uh, that much, if at all. And Alcaraz was able to beat him when he was playing at his best. Uh, in in that stage, and also show some new wrinkles to, I think, where the game of tennis can go at the, at the highest level. You know, Runa starting to show some of that, where you you can play short, you can come to net more, you have great speed, you have this athleticism. I mean, he's Alcaraz is just lightning fast. Not to mention his shots. 
have, have so much firepower. So, you know, this summer, again, you got Djokovic back in Cincinnati. Um, the tournament may be over by the time this one airs, but it's going on now as we speak. He has yet to play. I think he's due to play as I'm talking this day. But the a cool thing about him showing up is, first of all, he's, he's allowed in the country now, okay, because the vaccination thing is done with. He can get in. And his first practice at the tournament was, was standing room only from fans wanting to see him. And uh, I, I, for one, am happy for him and for tennis that he's – he's gotten to this place where it was really just Nadal and Federer. They were, I mean, they were, you know, more popular, so to speak. But I think that actually the way Djokovic handled himself on court at Wimbledon made him more fans than if he had won. Because if he had won, he'd just say, oh, he won again. This guy, you know, people that don't like him, oh, he's, you know, he's just, well, he'll never be Roger. You know, he'll never be Rafa. People text me, write me that all the time. But I'll tell you, he's, he's, he's moving into his own class, I, as I said, from a popularity standpoint. I was happy for him that, um, you know, he, he was so gracious in defeat in, in his comments right on the court, you know, right after the match. And I, to me, he's always, been a, he, he's always been a very good loser, Novak Djokovic. I mean, he's always given credit to his opponents more so than maybe any other player. Um, which I've always liked about him. So I'm looking forward to seeing what happens in New York. Um, Sinner, who, of course, as I said, won Canada, lost early in Cincinnati, but I think he's going to be a, a, a major threat, of course, with Alcaraz, Djokovic. You'd probably put them right now as co-favorites. Uh, I'll be interested to see what the odds, make, odds makers have it as, uh, you know, a week or so before the tournament. And again, our ESPN coverage will be uh, starting through the qualifying, which we were doing again this year, uh, Tuesday of the qualifying fan week, which is a lot of fun. So we'll get to talk to a lot of the players, uh, see some of the qualifying matches, and then, of course, be set for the final major of the year, which I am very much looking forward to. I hope everybody out there enjoying their summer. Uh, last couple of weeks as we head into the U.S. Open the school season, the start of the NFL season, so a lot going on. Uh, I, for one, will be looking forward to it, and uh, we'll be coming back at you as we get set uh, for first-round play at the U.S. Open uh, at the end of this month of August. Patrick McEnroe here on Holding Court. Don't forget to subscribe to and share Holding Court. Holding Court is powered by Mudhouse Media.